Hello, everyone. 2023 marks the 20th anniversary of Word Theater. For over two decades, we have been presenting special one-night-only events in Los Angeles, New York, and London, featuring the finest authors and actors on two continents. We are sharing selections from the past 20 years with you on our free weekly podcast. If you are anywhere near Los Angeles on March 18th, 2023, please join us live for Honor in their words, at the Hollywood Legion Theater. I'm very excited to have put together a special literary commemoration marking the end of the Vietnam War 50 years ago. This anniversary will be recognized in the United States at the end of March. And in advance of that, we are bringing together for a one-night event some of the finest authors, all of whom are military veterans. Tim O'Brien, Richard Bausch, and Tobias Wolf are among the authors who will be here on Saturday, March 18, 2023. And they are flying in from all over the country to attend this live event. The actors and singers who are performing are world-class. Please visit wordtheater.org to read all about it and pick up a ticket if you're able to join us. You can also sponsor a ticket for a vet. Remember, if you are a Word Theater patron or enthusiast member who lives far away, you will be able to view a filmed version on your membership page just a couple of weeks after the event. So, we thought today would be a great day to launch the rebroadcast of Tim O'Brien's How to Tell a True War Story, introduced by the author. And now it is with great pleasure that we offer the rebroadcast of this episode. Welcome to the Word Theater Short Story Podcast, your weekly access to the best short stories read by great actors, recorded live in the US and the UK, usually with the writer in the room. My name is Cedaring Fox. I'm Word Theater's founder and artistic director. Today's selection honors our veterans. For nearly 100 years, on November 11th, the day they signed the armistice with Germany that ended World War I in 1918, the United States has recognized those men and women who have served our country with a federal holiday, Veterans Day. We are very proud to be presenting a short story by Tim O'Brien from his seminal collection, The Things They Carried. Tim O'Brien burst onto the scene in 1973 with a memoir titled, If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home. In 1979, Tim won the National Book Award for going after Cacacciato, and his voice has long been recognized as one of America's finest for his honest and vulnerable writings about his experiences in Vietnam. Today you will hear How to Tell a True War Story, performed in Los Angeles by John Huertas when Tim was here for Word Theater. John served in the United States Air Force before becoming a very successful actor with long-running roles on Castle and currently This Is Us. To introduce this powerful story, please welcome the author, Tim O'Brien. Hi, this is Tim O'Brien. I'm delighted, of course, that Word Theater is presenting this reading of How to Tell a True War Story from my novel, The Things They Carried. Several years ago, I had a wonderful experience with Word Theater's unique coupling of talented actors with the written word. And this time is no exception. The reader will hear another lively, expert performance of my work. I'm really happy. How to Tell a True War Story is fiction. It is neither autobiographical nor semi-autobiographical. It is a product of my imagination. 
and the characters and events in the story are entirely invented. But having said that, I nonetheless hope that the story has the sound and the feel and the immediacy of nonfiction, as if the events being recounted actually occurred in the real world. The story had its origin in language, in its first three words. This is true. I remember typing those words. I remember stopping and staring at them and wondering what is true. There was not yet a story. There were not yet any characters. There was not yet a plot. I also remember thinking, hey, I sat down to write fiction. So how can the words, this is true, be true? The remainder of How to Tell a True War Story was written out of curiosity as I wrestled with the meaning of those first three words. All of us, I suppose, will at some point in our lives wrestle with those same questions. What is true about the world we live in, about ourselves, about the people around us? I hope you enjoy Word Theater's presentation of this story. This is true. I had a buddy in Vietnam. His name was Bob Kylie, but everybody called him Rat. A friend of his gets killed. So about a week later, Rat sits down and writes a letter to the guy's sister. Now Rat tells her what a great brother she had, how strack the guy was, a number one pal and comrade. A real soldier soldier, Rat says. Then he tells a few stories just to make a point how her brother would always volunteer for stuff that nobody else would volunteer for in a million years. Dangerous stuff like recon or going out on these silly badass night patrols. Stainless steel balls. That's what Rat tells her. The guy was a little crazy for sure, but crazy in a good way. A real daredevil because he liked the challenge of it. He liked testing himself, just man against gook. A great, great guy, Rat says. Anyway, it's a terrific letter. Very personal and touching. Rat, he almost bawls writing it. He gets all teary, telling about the good times that they had together. How her brother made the war seem almost fun. Always raising hell and, and lighting up villages and bringing smoke to bear every which way. A great sense of humor, too. <laughs> like the time at this river when he went fishing with a whole damn crate of hand grenades. Probably the funnest thing in, in world history. All that gore, about 20 zillion dead gook fish. Her brother, he had the right attitude. He knew how to have a good time. On Halloween, this real hot, spooky night, the dude paints up his body all different colors and puts on this weird mask and goes out on an ambush almost stark naked. Just boots, balls, and an M16. A tremendous human being. Rat says he's pretty nutso sometimes, but you could trust him with your life. And then the letter gets very sad and serious. Rat pours his heart out. He says he loves the guy. He says that the guy was his best friend in the world. They were like soulmates, he says. Like twins or something. They had a whole lot in common. He tells the guy's sister that he'll look her up when the war's over. So what happens? 
Rat mails the letter. He waits two months. The dumb coos never writes back. A true war story never has a moral. It does not instruct. It does not encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things that they have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If at the end of a war story you feel uplifted, or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatsoever. There is no virtue. As a first rule of thumb, therefore, you can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to the obscenity and evil. Listen to Rat Kylie. Coos, he says. He does not say bitch. He certainly does not say woman or girl. He says coos. Then he spits and stares. He's 19 years old. It's too much for him. So he looks at you with those big, gentle, killer eyes and says coos. Because his friend is dead. And because it's so incredibly sad and true, she never wrote back. Now you can tell a true war story if it embarrasses you. If you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Some guys to war, they come home talking dirty. Listen to that. Jesus Christ, man, I wrote this beautiful fucking letter. I slave over it. And what happens? The dumb coos never writes back. Now, the dead guy's name was Kurt Lemon. What happened was we crossed a muddy river and marched west into the mountains. And on the third day, we took a break along a trail junction deep in jungle. Right away, Lemon and Rack Kiley start goofing off. They didn't understand about the spookiness. They were kids. They they just didn't know. A nature hike, they thought. Not even a war. So they went off into the shade of some giant trees, a quadruple canopy, no sunlight at all, and they were giggling and calling each other motherfucker and playing a silly game they'd invented. The game involved smoke grenades, which were harmless unless you did some stupid things, which what they did was pull out the pin and stand a few feet apart and play catch under the shade of those huge trees. Now, whoever chickened out was a motherfucker. And if nobody chickened out, the grenade would make a light popping sound, and then they'd be covered with smoke, and they'd laugh and dance around, and then they'd do it again. That's all exactly true. It happened nearly 20 years ago, and I still remember that trail junction and the giant trees and a soft dripping sound somewhere beyond the trees. I remember the smell of moss, and up in the canopy were these tiny white blossoms, but no sunlight at all. And I remember the shadows spreading out under the trees where Lemon and Rat Kylie were playing catch with smoke grenades. Mitchell Sanders sat flipping his yo-yo, and Norman Boker and Kiowa and Dave Jensen were dozing, or half-dozing. And all around us were these ragged green mountains. Except for the laughter, things were quiet. 
At one point, I remember Mitchell Sanders turned and looked at me, not quite nodding. Then after a while, he rolled up his yo-yo and he moved away. Now, it's hard to tell what happened next. They, they were just goofing. And there was a noise, I suppose, which must have been the detonator. So I glanced behind me and I watched Lemon step from the shade into bright sunlight. His face was suddenly brown and shining. A handsome kid, really. Sharp, gray eyes, lean and narrow-waisted. And when he died, it was almost beautiful. The way the, the sunlight just came around him and lifted him up and, and sucked him high into a tree full of moss and vines and white blossoms. In any war story, but especially a true one, it's difficult to separate what happened from what seemed to happen. What seems to happen becomes its own happening, and it has to be told that way. The angles of visions are skewed. When a booby trap explodes, you close your eyes and you duck and you float outside yourself. When a guy dies, like Lemon, you look away and then you look back for a moment and then you look away again. And then the pictures get jumbled. You tend to miss a lot. And then afterward, when you go to tell about it, there's this surreal seemingness which makes the story seem untrue, but which in fact represents the hard and exact truth as it seemed. In many cases, a true war story cannot be believed. If you believe it, be skeptical. It's a question of credibility. Often the crazy stuff is true and the normal stuff isn't because the normal stuff is necessary to make you believe the incredible craziness. In other cases, you can't even tell a true war story. Sometimes it's just beyond telling. I heard this one, for example, from Mitchell Sanders. It was near dusk, and we were sitting at my foxhole along a wide, muddy river north of Kwangyai. I remember how peaceful the twilight was. A deep pinkish red spilled out onto the river, which moved without sound. And in the morning, we would cross that river and march west into the mountains. The occasion was right for a good story. God's truth, Mitchell Sanders says. A six-man patrol goes up into the mountains on a basic listening post operation. The idea is to spend a week up there. Just lie low and listen for enemy movement. And they've got a radio along, so if they hear anything suspicious, anything, they're supposed to call it in and get artillery and gunships, whatever it takes. Otherwise, they keep strict field discipline, absolute silence. They just listen. He glanced at me to make sure that I had the scenario. He was playing with his yo-yo, making it dance with, with short, tight little strokes of the wrist. His face was blank. We're talking hard-ass LP. These six guys, they don't say boo for a solid week. They don't got tongues, man, all ears. Right, I said. Understand me? Invisible? Sanders nods. A firm. 
said invisible. So what happens is these guys get themselves deep in the bush, all camouflaged up, and they lie down, and they wait, and that's all they do, nothing else. They lie there for seven straight days and just listen, and man, I'll tell you, it is spooky. These are mountains, and you don't know spooky till you've been there. It's jungle, sort of, except it's way up in the clouds, and there's always this fog like rain, except it's not raining. Everything's all wet and swirly and tangled up. You can't see Jack. You can't even find your own pecker to piss with. It's like you don't even have a body. It's serious, spooky. You just go with the vapors, man. The fog just sort of takes you in. And the sounds, man, the sounds carry forever. You hear shit nobody should ever hear. Sanders was quiet for a second, just working that yo-yo. And then he smiled at me. So after a couple of days, these guys start hearing this real soft, kind of whacked out music. Weird echoes and stuff. Like a radio or something, but it's not a radio. It's a strange goop music that comes right out of the rocks. Far away, sort of, but no, 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 right up close to. Now they try to ignore it, but it's a listening post. Right? So they have to listen. And every night they keep hearing this crazy-ass goop concert. All kinds of chimes and xylophones. I mean, this is the wilderness. No way. It can't be real, but there it is. Like the mountains are tuned in to radio fucking Hanoi. Naturally, they get nervous. One guy sticks juicy fruit in his ears. Another guy, he's, he almost flips. The thing is, they can't report music. They can't get on the horn and call back the bass and say, hey, listen, we need some firepower over here. We got to blow away this weirdo group rock band. <laughs> they can't do that. It wouldn't go down. So they lie there in the fog and they keep their mouths shut. And what makes it extra bad, see, is the poor dudes can't even horse around like normal. They can't joke it away. They can't even talk to each other, except maybe in whispers, all hush-hush. And that just revs up the willies even more. All they do is listen. Again, there was some silence as Mitchell Sanders looked out over the river. Now, the dark was coming on hard now, and off to the west, I could see the mountains rising in silhouette, all the mysteries and unknowns. This next part, Sanders said quietly, you won't believe. Probably not, I said. You won't, and you know why? <sighs> why? He gave me a tired smile. Because it happened. Because every word is absolutely dead on true. Sanders made a little sound in his throat, like a sigh, as to say he didn't care if I believed him or not. But he did care. He wanted me to believe, I could tell. He seemed sad, in a way. These six guys, they're pretty fried out by now. One night they start hearing voices, I mean, like a cocktail party. That's what it sounds like, like this big swank gook cocktail party somewhere out in the fog. Music and chit chat and stuff. It's crazy, I know, but they hear the champagne corks. They hear the actual martini glasses, real hoity-toity, all very civilized, except this isn't civilization, man, this is numb. 
Anyway, the guys, they, they try to be cool. They just lie there and, and groove. But after a while, they start hearing, <laughs> you won't believe this, man, they hear chamber music. They hear violins and shit. They hear this terrific Mama San soprano. They, after a while, they hear gook opera and a glee club and, and the high fong boys choir and a barbershop quartet and all kinds of weird chanting and Buddha Buddha stuff. And the whole time in the background there's this cocktail party going on and all these different voices, not, not human voices. Not human voices, though, because it's the mountains. You, you follow me? The rock, it's talking. And the fog, too, and the grass and the goddamn mongooses. Everything talks, man. The trees talk politics. The monkeys talk religion. The whole country, man, Vietnam, the place talks. The guys can't cope. They lose it. They get on the radio and they report enemy movement. A whole army, they say. And they order up the firepower. They get arty and gunships. They call in airstrikes. And I'll tell you, the fu they fucking crash that party. All night long, they just smoke those mountains. They make jungle juice. They blow away trees and glee clubs and whatever else is up there to blow away. I'm talking scorch time. They walk napalm up and down the ridges. They bring in the cobras and F4s. They use Willie Peter and HE and incendiaries. It's all fire. They make those mountains burn. Now, around dawn... Everything finally gets quiet. Like you've never even heard quiet. One of those real thick, misty days, just clouds and fog. And they're off in this special zone. And the mountains are absolutely dead, flat, silent. Like Brigadoon. Pure vapor. Everything's all sucked up in the fog. Not a single sound, except they still hear it. So they pack up, and they start humping. They head down the mountain, back to base camp. And when they get there, they don't say diddly. They don't talk, not a word, like they're deaf and dumb. Later on, this, this fat bird colonel comes up and asks, what the hell happened out there? What'd they hear? Why all the ordinance? And the man's ragged out. He gets down tight on the case. I mean, they spent $6 trillion on firepower, and this fat-ass colonel wants answers. He wants to know what the fucking story is. But the guys don't say zip. They just look at him for a while. Sort of funny-like sort of amazed. And the whole war is right there, right there in that stare. It says everything that you can't ever say. It says, man, you got wax in your ears. It says, poor bastard, you'll never know. Wrong frequency. You don't even want to hear this. Then they salute the fucker and walk away. Because certain stories you don't ever tell. 
And you can tell a true war story by the way it never seems to end, not then, not ever. Now, not even when Mitchell Sanders stood up and moved off into the dark. It all happened. Even now, I still remember that yo-yo. In a way, I suppose you had to be there. You had to hear it. And I, I could tell how desperately Sanders wanted me to believe him. His frustration at not quite getting the details right, not quite pinning down the final and definitive truth. And I remember sitting at my foxhole that night, watching the shadows of Kuang Yai, and thinking about the coming day and how we would cross the river and march west into the mountains, all the ways I might die, all the things I did not understand. And then, late in the night, Mitchell Sanders touched my shoulder. Just came to me, he whispered. The moral, I mean, you know? Nobody listens. Nobody hears nothing. Like that fat-ass colonel, the politicians, all the civilian types. What they need to do is go out on LP. The vapors, man. Trees and rocks. You got to listen to your enemy. And then again, in the morning, Sanders came up to me. The platoon was preparing to move out, checking weapons, going through all the little rituals that preceded a day's march. And already the lead squad had crossed the river and was filing off toward the west. And <laughs> Sanders, <sighs> I got a confession to make, Sanders said. Last night, I had to make up a few things. I know that. The Glee Club, there wasn't any Glee Club. <laughs> right. No opera. Forget it, forget it, man, I understand. Yeah, 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 but listen, listen, listen. It's still true. Those six guys, they heard wicked sound out there. They heard sound you just plain won't believe. Sanders pulled on his rucksack, closed his eyes for a moment, then almost smiled at me. I knew what was coming, but I beat him to it. All right, all right, I said. What's the moral? Nah, forget it. No, 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 go, go ahead, go ahead. For a long while, he was quiet, looking away. And the silence kept stretching out until it was almost embarrassing. Then he shrugged and gave me that stare that lasted all day. You hear that quiet, man? There's your moral. In a true war story, if there is a moral at all, it's like the thread that makes the cloth. You can't tease it out. You can't extract the meaning without unraveling the deeper meaning. And in the end, really, there's nothing much to say about a true war story, except maybe, oh, true war stories don't generalize. They do not indulge in abstraction or analysis. For example, war is hell. As a moral declaration, the old truism seems perfectly true. And yet, because it abstracts, because it generalizes it, I can't believe it with my stomach. 
Nothing turns inside. It comes down to gut instinct. A true war story, if truly told, makes the stomach believe. This one does it for me. I've told it before many times, many versions, but here is what actually happened. We crossed the river and marched west into the mountains. On the third day, Kurt Lemon stepped on a booby trap 105 round. He was playing catch with Cap, with Rat Kylie, laughing, and, and then he was dead. The trees were thick. It took nearly an hour to cut an LZ for the dust off. Later, higher in the mountains, we came across a baby VC water buffalo. What was it doing there? I don't know. There's no farms or paddies. But we chased it down and we got a rope around it and led it along to a deserted village where we set in for the night. After supper, Rat Kylie went over and stroked its nose. He, he opened up a can of sea rations, pork and beans. But the baby buffalo wasn't interested. So Rat shrugged. He stepped back, and he shot it through the right front knee. The animal did not make a sound. It went down hard, but then it got up again. And the rat took careful aim, and he shot off an ear. He shot it in the hindquarters, and then a little hump on his back. He shot it twice in the flanks. And it wasn't to kill, it was, it was just to hurt. He put the rifle up against the mouth and he shot the mouth off. Nobody said much. The whole platoon was stood there watching, feeling all kinds of things. There wasn't a great deal of pity for the water buffalo. Lemon was dead. Rat Kylie lost his best friend in the world. Now later in the week he would write a letter personal letter to the guy's sister who would not write back but for now it was a question of pain he shot off the tail he shot away chunks of meat below the ribs all around us there was a smell of smoke and filth and deep greenery and the evening was was humid and hot, and then Rat went to automatic. He just shot randomly, almost casually. Quick little spurts in the belly, in the butt. Then he reloaded. He squatted down, he shot it in the left front knee. Again, the animal fell hard and, 
and tried to get up, but this time it couldn't quite make it. It wobbled and it went down sideways. Rat shot it in the nose, bent forward and whispered something as if talking to a pet. Then he shot it in the throat. All the while, the baby buffalo was silent. Almost silent. It was just a light bubbling sound where the nose had been. It lay very still, and nothing moved except for the eyes, which were enormous. The pupils were shiny and dumb. Rat Kylie was crying. He tried to say something, but he just cratered his rifle and went off by himself. The rest of us stood in a ragged circle around the baby buffalo, and for a time, no one spoke. We had witnessed something. We had witnessed something essential, something brand new and profound, a piece of the world so startling that there was not yet a name for it. Somebody kicked the baby buffalo. It was still alive. Though just barely, just in the eyes. Amazing, Dave Jensen said. My whole life I've never seen anything like it. Never? Not hardly, not once. Kiowa and Mitchell Sanders picked up the baby buffalo and they hauled it across the open square. And they hoisted it up and dumped it in the village well. Afterward, we sat waiting for Rat to get himself together. Amazing, Dave Jensen kept saying. For sure, on a new wrinkle, I've never seen it before. Mitchell Sanders took out his yo-yo. Well, that's Nam, he said. Garden of evil. Over here, man, every sin's real fresh and original. How do you generalize? War is hell. But that's not the half of it because war is also mystery and terror and adventure and courage and discovery and holiness and pity and despair and longing and love. War is nasty. War is fun. War is thrilling. War is drudging. War makes you a man. War makes you dead. The truths are contradictory. It can be argued, for instance, that war is grotesque, but in truth, war is also beauty. 
For all of its horror, you can't help but gape at the awful majesty of combat. You stare out at tracer rounds, unwinding through the dark like brilliant red ribbons. You crouch in ambush as a cool, impassive moon rises over the nighttime patties. You admire the fluid symmetries of troops on the move, the harmonies of sound and shape and proportion. The great sheets of metal raining down from a gunship, the illumination rounds, the white phosphorus, the purpley black glow of napalm, the rocket's red glare. It's not pretty, exactly. It's astonishing. It fills the eye. It commands you. You hate it, yes, but your eyes do not. Like a killer forest fire or cancer under a microphone, under a microscope. Any battle or bombing raid or artillery barrage has the aesthetic purity of absolute moral indifference. A powerful, implacable beauty. And a true war story will tell the truth about this. Though the truth is ugly. To generalize about war is like generalizing about peace. Almost everything is true. Almost nothing is true. At its core, perhaps, war is just another name for death. And yet any soldier will tell you, if he tells you the truth, that proximity to death brings with it a corresponding proximity to life. After a firefight, there is always the immense pleasure of aliveness. The trees are alive, the grass, the soil, everything. All around you, things are purely living, and you among them. And the aliveness makes you tremble. You feel an intense, out-of-the-skin awareness of your living self, your truest self. The human being you want to be and then become by the force of wanting it. In the midst of evil, you want to be a good man. You want decency. You want justice and courtesy and human concord. Things that you never knew you wanted. There's a, there's a kind of, of largeness to it. It's a kind of godliness. Though it's odd, you're never more alive than when you're almost dead. You recognize what's valuable. Freshly, as if for the first time, you love what's best in yourself and in the world, all that might be lost. At the hour of dusk, you sit at your foxhole and look out on a wide river turning pinkish red and at the mountains beyond. And although in the morning you must cross the river and go into the mountains and do terrible things and maybe even die, even so you find yourself studying the fine colors of the river. You feel wonder and awe at the setting sun, and you are filled with a hard, aching love for how the world could be and always should be, but now is not. Mitchell Sanders was right. For the common soldier, at least, war has the feel, the spiritual texture 
of a great ghostly fog, thick and permanent. There is no clarity. Everything swirls. The old rules are no longer binding. The old truth's no longer true. Right spills over into wrong. Order blends into chaos. Love into hate. Ugliness into beauty. Law into anarchy. Civility into savagery. The vapors suck you in. You can't tell where you are or why you're there. And the only certainty is absolute ambiguity. In war, you lose your sense of the definite. Hence, your sense of truth itself. And therefore, it's safe to say that in a true war story, nothing much is ever very true. Often, in a true war story, there is not even a point. Or else, the point doesn't hit you until 20 years later in your sleep. And you wake up and you shake your wife and you start telling her the story. Except when you get to the end, you've forgotten the point again. And then for a long time, you lie there watching the story happen in your head. And you listen to your wife's breathing. The war's over. You close your eyes and you think, Christ, what was the point? This one wakes me up. In the mountains that day, I watched Lemon turn sideways. And he laughed and he said something to Rat Kylie. Then he took a peculiar half step, moving from shade into bright sunlight. And the booby trap 105 round, it blew him into a tree. And the, and the parts were just, they were just hanging there. So Norman Boker and I were ordered to shimmy up and peel him off. I remember the white bone of an arm. I remember pieces of skin and something wet and yellow that had to be the intestines. The girl was horrible. And it stays with me. But what wakes me up 20 years later is Norman Boker singing Lemon Tree as we threw down the parts. You can tell a true war story by the questions that you ask. Somebody tells a story, let's say, and afterwards you ask, is it true? And if the answer matters, you've got your answer. For example, we've all heard this one. Four guys go down a trail, a grenade sails out, one guy jumps on it and takes a blast and saves his three buddies' lives. Is it true? The answer matters. You'd feel cheated if it never happened. Without the grounding reality, it's just a tried bit of puffery. Pure Hollywood, untrue in the way that all stories are untrue. 
Yet even if it did happen, and maybe it did, anything's possible, even then you know it can't be true. Because a true war story does not depend upon that kind of truth. Happeningness is irrelevant. A thing may happen and be a total lie. Another thing may not happen and be truer than the truth. For example, four guys go down a trail, a grenade sails out, one guy jumps on it and takes a blast. But it's a killer grenade. And everybody dies anyway. But before they die, one of the dead guys says, the fuck you do that for? <laughs> and the jumper says, story of my life, man. And the other guy starts to smile, but he's dead. That's a true story that never happened. 20 years later, I can still see the sunlight on Lemon's face. I can see him turning, looking back at Rat Kylie. And then he laughed and took that curious half step from shade into sunlight. His face suddenly brown and shining. And when his foot touched down, in that instant, he must have thought that it was the sunlight that was killing him. <laughs> it was not the sunlight. It was a rigged 105 round. But if I could ever get the story right, how the sun seemed to gather around him and pick him up and lift him into a tree, if I could somehow recreate the fatal whiteness of that light, the quick glare, the obvious cause and effect, then you would believe that the last thing Lemon believed, which for him must have been the final truth. Now and then when I tell this story, someone will come up to me afterwards and say that she liked it. It's always a woman, usually an older woman of kindly temperament and humane politics. <laughs> She'll explain that as a rule, she hates war stories. She can't understand why people want to wallow in blood and gore. But this one, she liked. And sometimes there are even little tears. What I should do, she says, is just put it all behind me. Find new stories to tell. And I won't say it, but I'll think it. I'll picture Rat Kylie's face, his grief, and I'll think, you dumb coos. Because she wasn't listening. It wasn't a war story, it was a love story, it was a ghost story. But you can't say that. All you can do is tell it one more time, patiently, adding and subtracting, making up a few things to get to the real truth. No Mitchell Sanders, you tell her. 
No lemon, no rat Kylie. And it didn't happen in the mountains. No, no, it happened in this little village on the Batangang Peninsula, and it was raining like crazy. And one night, a guy named Stink Harris woke up screaming with a leech on his tongue. You can tell a true war story if you just keep telling it. In the end, of course, a true war story is never about war. It's about the special way that dawn spreads out on a river when you know you must cross that river and march into the mountains and do things that you are afraid to do. It's about love and memory. It's about sorrow. It's about sisters who never write back and people who never listen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to John Huerta's reading How to Tell a True War Story by Tim O'Brien. And if you did, please tell your friends. We're counting on you, our listeners, to let people know that we exist. And you know you can help Word Theater and our authors by purchasing their books at bookshop.org slash shop slash word theater. Please be sure to visit our website, wordtheater.org, and think about becoming a contributing member. We are a nonprofit organization, and all proceeds support the creation of our programs, the recording, mixing, mastering, and distribution of our live events. Special thanks to Jonathan Sachs for composing our theme music, and thank you to our podcast editor, Jason Lee. Always, we want to give a shout-out to the Los Angeles Department of Arts and Culture for helping to fund this podcast. Until next week, this is Cedaring Fox in Los Angeles, signing off.